Morning, Grace. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Esther. We're officially jumping in this week into chapter 1. While you turn there, imagine it's a cold winter's night and you are traveling on a bus with a group of strangers. And the weather is not good. In fact, it's been snowing and sleeting. And a bridge that your bus needs to pass over has been shut down. So the bus that you are on stops at this roadside diner to wait for the bridge to open up. And after you have ordered your food, two highway patrolmen enter the diner and tell you that a spaceship has crashed a few hundred yards away and the footprints in the snow from the spaceship lead to the diner. And that's when the paranoia and the blaming starts as you and everyone in the diner swears up and down that you were on that bus and you are not the alien that the cops are looking for. Well, that's exactly what happens in one of my favorite episodes of The Twilight Zone, which is called, Will the Real Martian Please Stand Up? Indulge me and let me read Rod Serling's opening monologue. Wintry February night, the present. Order of events. A phone call from a frightened woman notating the arrival of an unidentified flying object. Then the checkout you've just witnessed with two straight two state troopers verifying the event. But with nothing more enlightening to add beyond evidence of some tracks leading across the highway to a diner. You've heard of trying to find a needle in a haystack? Well, stay with us now, and you'll be part of an investigating team whose mission is not to find that proverbial needle. No, their task is even harder. They've got to find a Martian in a diner. And in just a moment, you'll search with them because you have just landed in the twilight zone. Will the real Martian please stand up? First aired on May 26, 1961, and it's one of the classic episodes. So during this heavy snowstorm, two state troopers are investigating a crash site and are led to believe that it was a UFO. They follow the footprints from the crash site to a diner where a group of passengers from a bus that's headed towards Boston, are waiting for word that a bridge up ahead is safe to cross. The only patrons of the roadside eatery are bus passengers, but there is one more person in the cafe than there were people on the bus. And so there is this mutual suspicion among the, the uh, stranded travelers as each of the passengers try to guess which one of them is the alien. When they finally get permission to cross the bridge, they leave on the bus together. Shortly thereafter, Mr. Ross, a businessman who was in the diner and left with the group on the bus, he returns to the diner and walks in and tells the cook behind the counter that the bridge collapsed and everyone fell into the cold river and died. All of the people on the bus, as well as the two highway patrolmen in their police car. He says, I'm the only one that has survived. As the cook wonders how the businessman survived, he also notes that his clothes are not even wet. So the cook says, but you're not even wet. And Mr. Ross replies, wet? What's wet? And that's when Mr. Ross unveils his third arm and stirs his coffee with his third hand, telling the cook that he is a Martian and revealing that Mars plans to start a colony on Earth. And that's when the cook behind the counter begins laughing. And he tells them that he's too late. And he takes off his hat and reveals a third eye in the middle of his forehead. (laughs) 
And then he discloses that he's from Venus, which has already started a colony, and that the Martian invasion force has been intercepted. So it's a double twist, one of the best endings of the Twilight Zone. Here's the closing monologue. Incident on a small island, to be believed or disbelieved. However, if a sour-faced dandy named Ross, or a big good-natured counterman who handles a spatula as if he'd been born with one in his mouth... If either of these two entities walk onto your premises, you'd better hold their hands, all three of them. Or check the color of their eyes, all three of them. The gentleman in question might try to pull you in to the twilight zone. Well, when you read Esther chapter 1, the author of Esther wants to pull you into the world of King Ahasuerus. He wants to pull you into the kingdom of Persia in the 480s BC, and he wants you to see how ridiculous this Persian king is. When you get finished reading Esther chapter 1, you're supposed to want a real king. You're supposed to find this Persian king, Ahasuerus, to be comical. You're supposed to think he's a joke, and you're supposed to long for a king who does what is right. A king who is not a joke. A king who rules with wisdom. A king who is supreme over all. You're supposed to finish reading Esther chapter 1 and finish reading all of Esther for that matter and ask, will the real king please stand up? And when you finish reading the rest of the Bible, you find that the real king did come. He did stand up, and that's what Advent, and that's what Christmas is all about. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. So let's get in a spaceship and travel back in time to Persia, where we will land outside a palace in 483 B.C. But before we do that, this is what we're going to see in Esther chapter 1 today, and it's this. Only King Jesus satisfies. You can try... And build your own little kingdom, but it won't satisfy you. Paul Tripp says, And we, in our sin, are just a company of glory thieves. That's what we are. We're glory thieves. We take the glory that belongs to another for our own. And that's what we all try to do apart from King Jesus. We're glory thieves. We all are constantly building up these little kingdoms of self that we think will bring us the satisfaction that we're looking for. And we all do this. You did it all week long. Where you wanted your way. You got mad because you didn't get your way. Why? Because in your world, you're the king. The king gets what he wants. Or the queen. We all try to build up our own little kingdoms of self that we think will bring us the satisfaction that we're looking for, but they won't because they can't. And that's what we'll see today in Esther chapter 1. So look at Esther chapter 1 beginning in verse 1 and hear the word of the king. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces... In those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, and in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. 
The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels. Vessels of different kinds. And the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. When you read about Ahasuerus... At first, you're supposed to be a little bit impressed. That will change later in the chapter. But at first, you can't help but gawk a little bit at his power and at his influence, at his crib where he lives and and all that he has. I mean, this guy probably has like a vintage sports car collection that he keeps in this like big uh, garage that probably has some air conditioning unit that keeps the temperature at 77 degrees year round. He's one of those guys. In other words, this guy is loaded. He's not only the most interesting man in the world, Ahasuerus is the most powerful man in the world. He's the most powerful man in the ancient Near East at this time. And he's full of himself. Did you catch in verses 3 and 4 why he's throwing this international party? Look there again. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. This guy is full of himself. He throws a party to show off his riches and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for 180 days. For six months. Six months of bragging and talking about himself all the time. I mean, that kind of comes with the territory, I think. I mean, can you think of any rich politicians who are full of themselves? Take a minute and strain your brain and think real hard and concentrate and see if you can come up or if you can think of of some rich politician who is full of himself. Can you think of one? Yeah, me neither. I can't think of a rich politician who is full of himself. The book of Esther is totally unrelatable to our time. Rich, prideful politicians who always talk about themselves and how great they are. We don't have those in our culture, do we? So King Ahasuerus throws a party, but it's not just any party. He gathers all of these armies and all of these international leaders to show off his riches and all that he owns. Basically, to brag and have people stroke his ego. But this isn't just any ordinary party. This party goes on for 180 days. 
180 days, six months. Who can keep this up? Who can get hammered night after night after night and go on and on for 180 days? Of course, it takes him 180 days to show off his kingdom because King Ahasuerus reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopian. But come on, King A, this is a long party. And then what does he do after the 180-day party ends? He throws another party. I mean, what's another seven days after you've partied for six months? Well, here's something interesting about the book of Esther, and it gives us insight into the Persians. There are ten parties or banquets that are mentioned in the book of Esther. There are ten chapters in the book of Esther, and there are ten parties or ten banquets that happen. And the Hebrew word that's used here for banquets occurs 20 times in Esther. What's interesting about the Hebrew word for banquets is that it is related to the Hebrew word for drinking. And rightly so, because what do people do at parties? They drink. But even more interesting is that the Hebrew word for banquets occurs 20 times in Esther, while it only occurs 24 times in the rest of the Old Testament. It's almost used as much in Esther as in the rest of the Old Testament. So these people like to party. The Persians liked to party. I told you last week that the P in Persia stood for party. P-A-R-T-Y. Why not? That was the motto in Persia. But this time, Ahasuerus opens this seven-day party up to all the citizens of his city. And we get a description of his pad in verse 6. His palace is decked out. Ahasuerus walks into Pier 1 Imports and he says, I'll take two of everything. Actually, he probably has somebody that goes and does that for him. So his palace is all decked out. Expensive curtains, marble pillars, couches of gold and silver. I mean, can you imagine that? Can you imagine a rich politician who lives in a giant building that is all decked out in gold? Can you think of a politician whose residence is decked out in gold? Sure you can. Saddam Hussein. Oh, you weren't thinking of him? Who were you thinking of? Do we have a politician in our country whose residence is decked out in all gold? We should move on. Ahasuerus is so loaded that even his floor is incredible. It was a mosaic pavement made up of marble and mother of pearl and precious stones. I mean, that's what he walked on. And drinks, which were lavished on all the guests, were served in golden vessels, there were no red solo cups at this party. This guy is not a redneck from Arkansas. No red solo cups to drink out of at his party. It's all gold goblets for everyone. Now, let me explain what the author of Esther is doing here when he describes this party. He is mocking Ahasuerus. The Hebrew syntax here is highly unusual. It consists of these two incomplete sentences. And what the author is doing here in the Hebrew, he's giving us these these two very terse, exclamatory phrases, which could be worded this way. And oh, the white and violet hangings. And oh, the drinks that were served. The author is mocking the king's extravagance. That's what he's doing in the Hebrew. Now stop and think about this. 
what does this kind of wealth and importance do to a man? What kind of effect does this have on a man? Well, you all know the answer. It goes to his head. It makes him power hungry. In fact, we'll see his lust for power in verse 8. Look at verse 8. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. This is how much of a control freak Ahasuerus is. He makes a law about how much everybody can drink. He's so much of a control freak that he has to make a law about how much everybody can drink at his party. And fortunately for all of his guests, Ahasuerus says there is no compulsion. Drink all you want. There is to be no restraint, he says. He actually mandates that everyone can drink without restriction. But he has to feel like he's in control of everything. So he makes a law that says, drink to your heart's content. But remember, people, I, King Ahasuerus, made that law. Now carry on. He's full of himself. Then we get this side note in verse 9 that will set up the next scene. It says, Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. So the queen throws a party for the women in the palace. And what we'll see in the next few verses is that Queen Vashti gets summoned from her party to show up at the king's party because he wants to show her off to all of his friends. Look at verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Biktha, and Abagtha, Zether, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admetha, Tarshish, Merez, Marcina, and Mimucan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, he says, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? And then Mimucan said in the presence of the king and the officials, Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. Let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree was made by the king So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. 
This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mimikan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man may be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. And so after 180 days of partying and showing off, and then seven more days, Ahasuerus saves the best for last. He wants to show off his wife Vashti. The queen was beautiful. Verse 11 says she was lovely to look at. But it says when the king was merry with wine. Literally the Hebrew is when the king's heart was good with wine. That means punch drunk by the way in Hebrew. When the king was drunk he calls for Vashti so he can parade her down a catwalk so the boys can all whistle at her. But Vashti refuses. And this is supposed to shock you. The queen refuses to obey the king. This was a risky and dangerous move for a queen in the ancient Near East. This is not good. And that explains why Ahasuerus is enraged. This triggers him. So he does what any drunk king would do. He assembles a group of other drunk men to give him advice. So he's drunk. He says, I can't remember what the law says about the matter. So one of his men, a man named Memucan, stands up and says that if the king lets Queen Vashti get away with this, then all the women in the kingdom will not honor their husbands. He informs the king that if he does not act, then all the women in the kingdom are going to say with this tone of voice, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come, she didn't obey, implying, then I don't have to obey you. That's how you have to read verse 17 in that tone of voice. So instead of dealing with this family matter alone with his wife in their kitchen, he takes it public. He goes to social media to air his grievances with his wife. By the way, don't do that. Don't get on Facebook and air all of your dirty laundry for everyone to see. For one, no one wants to see it. Two, the only people who are going to rally around you are the type of people that rally around the king right here, and they all give bad advice. Who said Esther wasn't applicable to our culture? So instead of dealing with this situation in a personal way, he makes it a public affair. And when he does that, he shows that he's a joke. The king, the one in charge the most powerful man in the ancient Near East at this time, he can't control his wife. This is comical. The most powerful man in the ancient Near East can't control his wife, and he needs advisors to tell him what to do with his wife. And they want it to go viral. The king is a parody of himself, of his position, of his throne. Now, what's interesting is that the word king is found over 100 times in the book of Esther, 118 times to be exact. And the king's name, Ahasuerus, is mentioned 28 times. But there's no mention of the king of kings in this book. There's no mention of Yahweh, the sovereign Lord. The king of Persia gets all this ink spilled on him, and he's a joke who can't control his kingdom. While the real king, Jesus, never gets mentioned at all, and he is controlling everything that happens in this book. This is comical. 
God is present even when he is most absent. And so the book of Esther has these elements of comedy which we see here in chapter 1. King Ahasuerus is the most powerful man in his kingdom, and yet he tries to instill obedience into his wife by making a law that all women must honor their husbands. How do you get your wife to honor you? Make a law that forces her to honor you. That's comical. You're supposed to laugh when you read this. So instead of getting what he wanted, Ahasuerus just broadcast to his entire empire how he, the most powerful man in the kingdom, cannot tame his own wife. This is comical. The king cannot control his wife with a law, so his advisors tell him to pass a law to control all women. Husbands, you should be squirming a little bit here, thinking this is not going to end well. Here's their advice. So you can't control your wife, right? She won't obey the law? Okay, here's what we're going to do. Let's control all the women of the empire with a new law. This is comical. Not only that, the chief advisor, Mimucan, basically says this. Oh no, what are we going to do, king? If we don't do something... Your whole empire is going to hear about this embarrassing thing that Vashti has done. So let's make a law that tells everyone about the embarrassing thing that Vashti has done. It's comical. What? Mimucam just said in verse 17, if they don't do something about this, then all the women in the land will hear about it. And so he turns around and says, let's tell every woman about it by making this law. Mimucan should change his name to Mimucant. He's full of himself too because in verse 20 when it says how vast it is, when they hear how vast this decree is in Hebrew, this is the idea of how magnificent this is. So he's saying there, he's saying when they hear about how magnificent this law is, I mean guys, you know where this is going, don't you? They're so full of themselves, this good old boys club, man, when they hear how magnificent our law is, it's just pride. Vashti's wish was that she didn't want to spend time with the king. She did not want to be around the king. And these buffoons go and pass a law that says Vashti can't spend time with the king. She gets what she wants. I don't want to be around the king. Well, let's pass a law that she can't be around the king. It's comical. She gets what she wants, and the king doesn't get what he wants. It's comedy. Well, see, well, we see the comedy later on in chapter 6 when the king gets that bad case of insomnia and he can't sleep. What does he do? He gets up the royal records and he reads about his own reign. That's supposed to be funny. You can't sleep, so what do you do to get yourself sleepy? Read about yourself. Read about you. I think King Ahasuerus liked it. I want to read about myself. What are people saying about me today? What's on social media? Are people mentioning me? Am I get, are my tweets getting retweeted to everyone? Are people liking? Tell me what's going on. What do people think of me? We're all guilty of this. This is one way that we all try to have our little kingdom of self is we enjoy seeing what people say about us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. We, we like the hearts and we like the thumbs ups and all those things, don't we? This has plagued humanity since the fall. Puritan pastor Thomas Goodwin, one of my favorites, said this, my master lust was the love of applause. 
My master lust was the love of applause. He started out wanting to be a celebrity pastor, having everyone make comments about him on social media and tell him how great his sermons were. And he wanted to retweet the compliments that people were saying about him. And then he realized, oh, there's grace. And being in Jesus' kingdom and being caught up in his glory is far more satisfying. Let me ask you today, do you live for the applause of men? Do you get that little rush when somebody says something about how great your Instagram picture is that took you 10 minutes to put together? No one does that, right? I'm not trying to step on your toes. I'm just trying to throw all of us under the bus so that we realize there's a better kingdom to sink your life up with. It's better than having people stroke your ego. It's falling down before the king of kings and saying only you are worthy. Ahasuerus would get on Facebook in the middle of the night just to see who liked his posts. He is to be laughed at. There's comedy here in the book of Esther. Peter Lee says, Readers miss the comedy in Esther largely because of misconceived notions about the inspired word. We expect books in the Holy Scriptures to be serious, i.e. somber, with a life-altering message. The message in Esther is life-altering, but it is not presented with the same tenor as found in other books. Humor is viewed as banal or profane and thus inappropriate for the Word of God. But to miss this humor, however, is more than unfortunate because the comedic aspects are not incidental, but rather central to the message. As Berlin states, we cannot appreciate the story fully unless we realize that it is meant to be funny. Ahasuerus is laughable. He's the most powerful man in the world at the time. He has this vast kingdom, and yet he cannot control his own court officials, his concubines, and even his own wife. It's comical. You're supposed to see that when you read the book of Esther. Of course, the book of Esther does not have as its goal primarily to mock the Persian king Ahasuerus, even though it does it well. Ahasuerus comes across more as a court jester than a king, but you can't miss this when you read it. The most powerful king of the time with his vast empire that reaches far and wide and whose name is mentioned 28 times in this book and who is referred to as the king 118 times in this book, he cannot be compared to the king of kings, God Almighty, Jesus Christ, whose authority is obviously established even though his name does not even appear in this book. The real king of kings is present even though he is absent. And so on the one hand, you have a king who has money, he has a vast empire, he has lots of yes-men, a whole temple full of supermodel concubines at his disposal. Anytime he wanted one, he could just call for one. He has a beautiful palace that is decked out, and he knows how to throw a mean party that lasts over six months. And he's mentioned almost 130 times in this book. And you contrast that with Jesus, the king of kings, whose name is not even mentioned in this book. And yet his hidden hand of providence is orchestrating every detail. You're supposed to finish reading the book of Esther and long for the latter king. You're supposed to walk away from the book of Esther and think, is there a king who could rule with wisdom 
and power? Could there be a politician who could not be bought, who wasn't corrupt? Is it possible to have a king who could throw a party that would truly satisfy the human heart? A king who isn't self-centered? And the answer to all that is yes. There is a king like that. There is a politician like that. There is someone who can throw a party that truly satisfies his name is Jesus. Understand this, Grace. Jesus throws the best parties. Jesus throws the best parties. Jesus serves up drinks of living water that truly satisfy Jesus serves up 200 proof grace. As Robert Capon said, when speaking about the rediscovery of God's grace during the time of the Reformation, he said this, the Reformation was a time when people went blind, staggering, drunk because they had discovered in the dusty basement of late medievalism a whole cellar full of 1,500-year-old 200 proof grace of bottle after bottle, of pure distillate of Scripture, one sip of which would convince anyone that God saves us single-handedly. And for the Reformers, grace was to be drunk straight. No water, no ice, and certainly no ginger ale. Neither goodness nor badness nor the flowers that bloom in the spring of super-spirituality could be allowed to enter that case. Jesus offers living water that satisfied. 200 proof grace that is to be drunk straight. Jesus throws the best parties. You leave satisfied and you don't leave with a lampshade on your head. And you don't wake up in the morning with a tattoo of Justin Bieber on your forearm. <laughs> Only Jesus satisfied. Satisfies. That's where you end up at the end of this chapter. Only Jesus satisfies. Your own little kingdom that you work so hard to build up like King Ahasuerus, it cannot satisfy the longings of your heart. It might temporarily, but it cannot do that long term. Your little kingdom of self and my little kingdom of self cannot satisfy and it will not endure forever. It will topple. It will come crashing down. So let me ask you today, where have you set up your own little kingdom in your life where it's just me, 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 my way. It's about me, what I want. Maybe it's the applause of man, hearing people stroke your ego and tell you how awesome you are. Or maybe it's in your marriage. It's all about you. True joy True satisfaction is not found in your glory. It's not found in your reputation. It's not found in getting your way. It's found in the glory and in the kingdom of Jesus. I don't know what you're looking to in order to find satisfaction today, but in the end, it will leave you empty. Is it a relationship? If I can just have that relationship, then I'll be happy, then I'll be satisfied. Or maybe it's a new job, or a new house, a new car, money. I mean, fill in the blank. We're all very different. We all have differing things that we said, if if I had that, I would be satisfied. And if we shared them with one another, we'd probably say, really? That's what you want? That would bring you satisfaction? 
And then you ask that person, well, what do you want? And they tell you, and you're like, really? That's what you want? That will bring you satisfaction? Fill in the blank. We all do it all the time, all week long, which is why we have to come back here every single Sabbath and hear the gospel declared what Jesus has done for us, for glory thieves like us who are hot after the trail of his glory week in and week out. Fill in the blank. It could be anything. We all look to thousands of other things, and some of those things are good things to find satisfaction, but true satisfaction can only be found in Jesus. Only King Jesus satisfies. David says in Psalm 4, verse 7, You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their wine and grain abound. In other words, you have put more joy in my heart than the world when they have everything. Then King Ahasuerus who has everything. Jesus, you have put more joy in my heart than the richest, most prideful politician this world could ever see. I have more joy than those people have when they party it up. Only King Jesus satisfies. And he's going to throw a mean party one day that will last for all of eternity. Not six months and then a week for all of eternity. The marriage supper of the Lamb is going to last forever and ever. And you get to the end of Esther and you want the real king to stand up. The real king has stood up and he offers eternal life to sinners like us, to glory thieves like us. And what does King Jesus say in Isaiah 25 about his second advent? We're celebrating Advent, his first coming, we're anticipating his second. What does Jesus say about his second Advent when he returns? He says, I'm going to throw a party that satisfies. Isaiah 25, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Ain't no party like a Jesus party. I have already RSVP'd to that party Have you repent of your sins and trust and believe the good news of the gospel today that Jesus lived the perfect life for you that you should have lived, but you can't because you're a sinner. And he died in your place for your sin. For all the times you try to steal his glory, he died for you in your place He died for all of your feeble attempts to find satisfaction apart from him and all of your feeble attempts to build up your own little kingdom of self. Will you come to Jesus today to find life and joy and peace? You can come to him today and drink and be satisfied. Jesus calls out to all of us during Advent, during the Christmas season, to come and to taste and to see that the Lord is good. Hear his voice call out to you today and respond with repentance and trust. Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 3. Come, everyone who thirsts, 
Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Come today. Come to the waters and drink and be satisfied. Come to the living waters that Jesus offers and take a big gulp and then just say, ah, that's worship. That's how you give glory to the real king is to take a drink and just say, Let's pray. Father, your word is a mirror. We see our own reflection, even though we read about King Ahasuerus. We're really reading about ourselves, Father, because we all, in many ways, have tried to build up these little kingdoms of self where we're in charge, we get our way, people at least functionally bow down to us and we think we'll be happy and oh father you know i am so guilty of this my family knows that i am so guilty of just wanting my way and father we stand exposed as glory thieves and we say forgive us and we repent and we turn from this and we hate our sin and we look to your son Jesus and we believe the gospel, Father, that he never did this. He humbled himself by becoming a slave, a servant, becoming obedient even unto death for us. He did it for your glory on behalf of glory thieves like us. And we rejoice in that good news this morning, Father. And we take a drink and we just say, ah, oh, You satisfy us. Satisfy our hearts this season of Advent as we look forward to the party that you're going to throw one day for us. In Jesus' name, amen.